This is Due South. I'm Leonita Inge. It was an entire county, Rutherford County in Tennessee. That's where hundreds, maybe even thousands of children were arrested illegally over the span of a decade. And that's where fellow NPR member station reporter and host Maribah Knight discovered all of this disturbing news and what she reports on for the newest season of the serial podcast, The Kids of Rutherford County. Do you remember what year it was that you were you were arrested and jailed? Uh, I was so young that I don't even remember what what was going on in that time. Yeah, right. And so you were how old were you? Seven. Oh my god. When Brandon was just seven years old, police showed up at his door to arrest him. Brandon's offense? Tagging along with his older brothers, who'd wrestled in a vacant duplex and left some holes in the drywall. Now, police were there to take Brandon and his brothers to the juvenile detention center. Jail, basically. My mom said that they weren't going to take me in, but they were like, well, he needs to learn his lesson. Brandon was held in detention overnight and then brought to the juvenile court for his hearing. They had me um, in shackles from our feet to our arms going into court. Brandon should have gone home with his mom that day, but when he went before the judge, she sent him back to jail for a week. That's Mariba Knight on the newest season of the New York Times podcast serial, and she joins us now on Do South. Hello, Mariba. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, please tell me a little bit more about what was going on there with that, with that young man. Um, how old is he? Yeah, that's Brandon. He, uh, he was seven years old when he was arrested and jailed by Rutherford County. Uh, it was for a nonviolent property offense, uh, yet he was illegally jailed for days um, and then jailed again by the judge for a week. And he's just one of more than 25 people that I spoke to over the course of reporting this podcast that were arrested and jailed by this county, Rutherford County, who for, as you said in the intro, for more than a decade had these two illegal policies on the books that caused hundreds, likely thousands of kids to be unlawfully jailed and wrongly arrested. And it went on for a very long time. And this podcast is the story of of how that started and who tried to fight back. An amazing story. And it's definitely getting a, a lot of attention. I guess um, Serial has done it again. But I, I'd like to know, how did you and why did you even approach this story? I mean, did a parent come to you? How did you find out that this was such a problem? Yeah, for a reporter, it was really... Uh, one of those stories that was a very slow burn. I'm from Boston by way of Chicago, and I came to Nashville uh, in 2016. And a month after I got here, 
there were 11 children arrested in Rutherford County for not stepping in to stop a fight. And I chronicled that in the first episode of this show. But essentially, I read about those arrests and I was so confused and just shocked, you know, like the rest of the county and honestly, the country. I mean, it was written about by The Washington Post and The New York Times. And it was just like this staggering number of kids arrested for such a small little thing. And it got my interest. And I wondered, you know, where there's smoke, there must be fire. And I just kept thinking about that case and that incident. And I began to follow the lawsuits that followed. And in the wake of those arrests, there were uh, seven federal lawsuits filed around this county for uh, r- arresting children wrongfully, for jailing them illegally, and also for putting them in solitary confinement. And the m- m- two lawyers behind many of those lawsuits are featured in the podcast, and they're very interesting, too, because they're former, quote-unquote, juvenile delinquents themselves. And so it was interesting, the story that I saw emerging, which was this really, this moment, this flashpoint of the arrest of 11 children, and then this very slow, methodical kind of trudge towards accountability through the federal court system, uh, through these two lawyers, and then eventually, you know, through my reporting. Um, but as a storyteller, it really pulled me in because I had a big question, but also there was this moment that I could point to and then follow from there and look at kind of what was underneath these arrests, right? The the arrests of the 11 children felt like the tip of the iceberg. And I wanted to know what was beneath it. And that's what this is. <laughs> that's, uh, well, that's understandable. Anybody that would just shake at me. I was shaken even learning about it, hearing about it. And, um, you know, I've been a race and Southern culture reporter for a very long time. And just even hearing your first episode of this podcast was quite disturbing. And um, one thing I definitely wanted to hear Early on, you know, these kids, they were, I think, they were all black kids. Yeah. And, the, and not only were they all black kids, um, the officer that approached families asking people to point out who's in this video was a white woman who, listening to her voice in the podcast, she just felt, you know, I just felt, you know, I was doing my job and they needed to be taught a lesson. And I was like, that's where it begins, right there. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, as a storyteller, a lot of my work has focused on children, um, marginalized communities, race and culture and criminal justice. And, and this story just felt like such a culmination of all of that. This is really the prison school to prison pipeline, like so explicitly illustrated, right? Like these kids were walking after school, minding their own business, having a bit of a scuffle, and then the school intervenes and says, we're going to scoop you all up and send you to jail. Uh, it turned out that they were charged with a crime that's not even a crime. It was criminal responsibility for conduct of another, and it wasn't even a real charge. So from soup to nuts, this whole thing was wacky and wrong. But what was underneath all of that were some very effective and damning policies put in place by the judge and the jailer of this county that were just sucking hundreds and thousands of kids into the system. And that's what I want to talk more about. I know you and your collaborators at ProPublica found that this was pretty common in this county and that lots of children were being arrested and detained. But can you tell us a little bit more about how widespread this was in Rutherford County, for example? 
Yeah, I mean, when you looked at the data, the self-reported data of the county, um, there was uh, a point in time where they were jailing children at more than 10 times the state average, according to this state data. And so they were an outlier. Yet what our reporting showed was that this had gone on for years and nobody flagged it. No one in the state flagged it. Uh, no one in the data collection in the administrative office of the courts flagged it. Nobody flagged it until this one really green lawyer walked in and got a client who was illegally jailed and said, what the heck's happening here? And he was kind of pushed aside. Oh, this is just the way things are here. And he was this ultimate outsider and decided to go head to head and say, no, this is not right. Like, I'm going to file a lawsuit. Yeah, I and think that's, one thing you said mm-hmm. that, that people almost felt it's a rite of passage for the children in that county. Yes, yes. So so it was. I mean, it was so. It happened so often. It happened so often, happened to so many kids that it became kind of like, if you're a fish, do you know you're in water, right? Like, um, they, the community at large, including all of the folks working in this place, like, this was just the way the system operated. This was the way the judge wanted it to operate. Who was going to go against that? And it really shows you how a system is built and how there might be one person at the top of it, but there's all these people that are complicit, that are part of this system that help make it work. And essentially, it takes somebody to break through that. Um, and in this case, it was a couple young lawyers. But um, yeah, this was this was something that the county really prided itself on. It's tough on crime approach. Kids needed to learn lessons. And so that's why it went on for as long as it did. Yeah, pick and, on the people who can't fight back. Exactly. And the thing also that I learned in this, and um, while we value, you know, the secrecy and the confidentiality around children in the court system, right? Many of the proceedings are private. All of the records are sealed. And we do that for good reason, right? We don't want kids to have this stuff follow them, except what that also does is it shields the adults in charge from accountability. It's very hard to see inside of a juvenile court system. And the only reason I was able to see inside of it was because of these federal lawsuits that kind of cracked the door open and allowed me to look and see all of this evidence, all of these court filings, all this testimony and these depositions. And that's when you saw the bigger picture of what this court and the system was really doing to kids. Well, before we chat about, um, I guess, the next episodes of the podcast, give our listeners an idea of some of the things that these children were being arrested for. Oh, it was everything from, you know, truancy, not going to school, uh, ending up in in jail for weeks on that, petty theft. Um, There were, you know, uh, domestic assaults where a parent was hurting the kid and the kid fought back and then the kid would get jailed. There was things like Brandon where there was a nonviolent kind of vandalism, uh, a lot of first time spray paint offenses. Um, It really ran the gamut. But the thing was, is they were just these petty, minor, minor things, things that kids do, underage drinking, smoking, skipping school, running away, jailed. Jailed, jailed, jailed. I mean, there's a kid who was, uh, I say in the first episode, or in the second episode, rather, a kid using a blank check at a school book fair. Jailed. So it was, it was all over the place, but it was these really, really small, piddly things, often things that kids do. And they would end up behind bars. They would go 
uh, be sent to the jail. They would be processed, which meant that they were um, forced to strip down naked, shower in front of a guard of their gender. Imagine being a young kid, right? Like your body is changing all the time. You're kind of unsure of yourself. Kids I spoke to now adults talked about this moment all the time. Like that moment where you had to strip down, shower in front of a guard. The shower was either too hot or too cold. They'd send you to your jail cell. You got to sit there and you couldn't lay down. You couldn't sleep. If you did, they would bang on your door. They would make you stand in a corner for long periods of time. If you did anything that wasn't totally by the books, you would be put on lockdown, which was essentially solitary confinement. Confine or a child. Yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, these are all things that when I talk to young people, now full-grown adults, like the memories are so vivid. Like that takes them right back there. And and you hear that. But, oh, just from a, every step of the way, um, a child going through this kind of very much like, you know, booking process that um, you think maybe is what adults go through. The kids went through it, too. And it sticks with them. You're listening to Do South. I'm Leonida Inge, and I'm speaking with Mariba Knight, a host and reporter at Nashville Public Radio and host of the new season of the serial podcast titled The Kids of Rutherford County. You know, this really is making my skin crawl, <laughs> listening to you, Mariba, you know, can, to talk about, you know, how these um, these young children, you know, it's like they had no rights, had no rights at all. And the adults that loved and wanted to take care of them and did take care of them, I think they. it sounds like they were just as afraid of the criminal justice system there as their children were. Absolutely. I talked to Brandon's mom, the seven-year-old who was jailed. I mean, she was just at such a loss. First of all, she didn't speak English, immigrant from Mexico, and she stood there in the court, she recalled, and just didn't know what was going on. It was her youngest child and two of her older children who had all kind of been, they'd just been wrestling in a duplex that was vacant and they had hit the wall and, and punched a hole in it. And here they were in court. She didn't know what was happening. She told me, remembering breaks my soul. Um, I heard that from a lot of parents. They just felt completely powerless in this space. And the judge... Uh, was very strict with them, too. She would march them up and tell them they were being bad parents and that their children were um, the problem with Rutherford County, that they were, you know, bad for the community and that these parents weren't doing their jobs. And so it was incredibly, incredibly scary for the parents to to deal with um, the juvenile court as well. And, you know, many of them couldn't afford attorneys, so they're appointed, you know, um, these attorneys uh, that are, you know, for the, from the court. And it, it just ultimately, it was a very dehumanizing process. Um, but also, because they were children, uh, they felt like they were just trapped in this, right? Like, in Tennessee, actually, children in juvenile court, they don't have a right to a jury trial. So judges have immense amounts of power and discretion. And there's no bail here. Um, so in a way, it's like this shrunken down adult system with even fewer rights for the children. You know, you also speak with... Um um, people who say they 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 knew something was just wrong here. It didn't smell right, and thank goodness they decided to do something about it. And one of those people is 
Attorney Wes Clark. In 2014, he was a lawyer in Rutherford County, Tennessee, on his first case, and he finds himself working in juvenile court. And I'm sitting across from this little, scared 12-year-old girl who had, like, accidentally started a fire and had now spent the night in, in jail. It just felt wrong. You know, it, it did not feel like this is how kids should be treated. It didn't feel like this was the right place for this 12-year-old to be. Well, Mariba, you know, was that the right place for a 12-year-old to be? Tell me about your, um, about meeting and interviewing Mr. Clark. Yes. Uh, it was not the right place for that 12-year-old to be. She did not meet the statutory requirements to be put in jail, yet she was. Um, and Wes Clark is a really fascinating individual. Um, I, f- I began to know him through my pursuit of this story. I noticed that a couple lawyers had brought the majority of these seven federal lawsuits, and I was really curious to talk with them. Why? Why did they do this? And I learned that uh, kind of the main driver of it was this guy, Wes Clark, who was a juvenile court lawyer and his partner, Mark Downton, was a juvenile court lawyer. So the thing that fascinated me about this story was that this wasn't some kind of big national law firm coming in to do pro bono work. These were court appointed attorneys who had cut their teeth in juvenile court, who are now turning around and really biting the hand that feeds them. This is the place where they got their work. And he's saying, what you're doing is wrong, and I'm going to shine a light on it. I am going to raise the alarm about it. And it might be to the detriment of my own income, but this is not right. And so he really began this kind of crusade of saying, how do I sue this court? How do I get justice for these kids that I am representing? And I'm seeing time and time again being arrested and jailed illegally. Um, and so it's really part of the story is a story of him as he tries to kind of fight back. And it's 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 really a David and Goliath story. But he also has this very unique perspective because he came to the court with a lot of baggage. Um, juvenile court is not the most prestigious place. I'll just say that. Um, and it was the only place Wes Clark could go because he grew up and uh, he was addicted to opioids uh, for most of his youth. He grew up in a in a very uh, poor part of Tennessee, a place that was kind of gutted by NAFTA. And, you know, the factories were closed and opioids moved in and he and many other people uh, were victims of that. And he became addicted to Oxycontin very young. And what the, what happened to him in turn was he had an arrest record. He had a rap sheet. So a lawyer with a rap sheet, not getting a job at a white shoe firm, but he needed a job. So he went to juvenile court and he took cases. And what he saw in those cases were kids just like him. And so he was just uniquely positioned to say something about what was happening. And that's part of what I really love about this story is that it does kind of come full circle to Wes. He's sitting there representing kids put in solitary confinement when he himself was put in solitary confinement as an 18-year-old. So it really has these 
kind of powerful figures driving the narrative in 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 terms of Wes, where he comes from, in terms of Mark Downton, who also came to the court with um, a big problem with alcohol and his own rap sheet, and they just see these kids in a in a way that other lawyers don't, and as a result, they're really able to fight for them. Well, Maripa Knight, thank you so much for joining us on Due South. And um, thank you for your reporting and making sure that this story gets out to the masses. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. We've been speaking with Maripa Knight, the host of the serial podcast, The Kids of Rutherford County. I'm Leonita Inge. You're listening to Due South.